and it's welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jen Bartlett, a cold spring day. We thought we had the warmer weather, but not so, perhaps in the next few days. Still, life goes on. We look today at the announcement of nuclear-powered subs. Will they eventuate, or as Corrine Grant said, will we rely on masks and flippers? We'll be speaking with Professor Richard Tanter. We've heard a number of people speak about their experiences in Afghanistan. Today, the thoughts and experiences of Afghan Rujib Ibid, who was in Afghanistan visiting family just prior to the fall of the government. The history of Peru, a new government, a new start. Sasha gillis Lakakis will talk today with part one. The third and final report by the International Investigation into Human Rights Violations in the Philippines. I'll be speaking to the Chair, Peter Murphy. But first, Mr Kevin Healy, and he's had another one of his weeks. A week, Jane, listener, when, oh dear, what a pity. Thursday morning, four-page lift out in the Troubler Aussie Capitalist Review, promoting South the Troubler Aussie, with one headline, Train-Killing Boom in the State Creates Employment Opportunities including the exciting news that the 90 billion and growing French submarine fleet would create 4,000 direct jobs and lots of other things. Oh dear, what a pity. Before the ink was dry, like magic, 4,000 jobs just disappeared. Big Supremo scuttled them Morlash son, a.k.a. Scomo, who loves being photographed giving people the elbow, the COVID elbow, while nowhere near it gave France both the elbow and the finger. But it's not all bad news. Instead, the billions will go to the US of the UN of the US of the world's merchants of death, with the added bonus of fun, fun, fun nuclear reactors thrown in. US of big supremo Joe Biden capital living up to his name on behalf of US of capital and making a strong, very, very strong bid for con man of the year. Convincing his naive victims scuttle them to spend billions of Troubluwazi taxpayers' money to support the US of defence of its corporate interests. Poor naive scummo should have seen through the con act when Joe quite blatantly declared Troubluwazi was spending all these billions to protect the US of. And the Connacht could have come undone when Joe couldn't even think of Scummo's name. Not a good look for a con man. Lucky he had a willing victim. Uh, hang on, Mr. Supremo, it's either uh, Kevin or, or Julia. No, no, probably not Julia. <laughs> At which point he cracked a very funny homophobic joke. I uh, know, probably not Julia, uh, Tiny or Malcolm or, or uh, someone called Scomo. Look, just say down under, Mr. Supremo, and, and don't forget it's not the one next to Germany there. It's kind of far west U.S. off. Scuttle then dashed down excitedly to his congregation and laying on hands and talking in tongues proclaimed the whole country had joined the nuclear family, that bedrock of decent dear baby Jesus society. Unless, of course, they are evil, no proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people, criminal families, and Scummo's Christianity showed us how to treat them. Same morning in the Capitalist Review, three authors of a US of Studies report wrote... While the Troubluwazi government remains steadfast in its refusal to concede Beijing's political demands, it does not want to escalate the situation, risking additional restrictions on exports. 
Oh dear, what a pity again. Again, before the ink was dry, any hope of not escalating that risk had flown the coop. Showing the common sense and foresight and brilliant strategic thinking of Scuttle them and his minister for being offensive and trained killing Constable Peter Duffer and minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Marie's pain in there. Although I reckon we can excuse Pete because thinking requires thinking. Suppose there's something appropriate in sinking billions and billions of taxpayers hard-earned on nuclear-powered trained killer merchandise that spends most of its life at the bottom of the ocean, along with our money. Oh, and lots more of that money in France. That's why I knew Lord Rupert of Wapping, and particularly his Wapping sin, would excoriate the government for tearing up a contract and wasting billions of taxpayers' money, given the hysteria when the continuing... Um, and continuing when the pejorative Dan State Government tore up the East-West Link contract foisted on it by the previous caring business class party government on the eve of the election. The most irresponsible proof that the pejorative Dan had no idea how the greatest little economic order of them all works. Irresponsible, irresponsible, irresponsible waste. Oh, hmm, obviously this is different because... Amid the whopping sins, 100% support for now getting less for more, the only mention of tearing up the contract is a Lord Rupert Lackey's comment praising Scuttle them for cutting our losses. So, so there's obviously a major difference that somehow escapes us, or, or certainly me as a novice, in how the greatest little economic order works. Oh, and we don't even need to say this, but Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Anthony, all being oozy, supports Scummo and Pete. And Marie said, but with a very important caveat, that Trubler was he doesn't adopt nuclear energy, which just might cause him a few problems, as that repository of revolutionary thought, the AWU, Australian Workers Undermined, immediately called for Trubler was he to go nuclear. Why would Trubluwazi be the odd man out of nations with nuclear submarines? Union Secretary Daniel Welsh on them made sense. And direct quote, no embellishment. If we cut this off as an option, we'll be letting loud scaremongers triumph over the environment and our economy. Dear me, those bloody loud scaremongers. Look, Constable Duffer couldn't have said it better. And speaking of the environment, which apparently can only be saved by having the capacity to irradiate the planet, the bottomless costs won't see the peace-loving, fully-armed nuclear saviors ready to frighten the shit out of China until roughly 2050, the same timescale for which Scummo and the team can't quite commit to saving the planet anyway, so it might just be all academic and there'll be nothing to save, a planet inhabited by nothing but nuclear reactors. Now, of course, we have to pay for all of this somehow, along with all the corporate welfare that has ballooned even more exponentially thanks to COVID and the billions we spend on consultants to do jobs the public sector used to do, for instance, until governments discovered just how inefficient those public servants are. Thank goodness the big transnational consultancies are there to help us out at their most reasonable billion-dollar fees. And the good news is the team led by big economic guru Josh Fried of Icebergs has unearthed where those savings can be made. 
order workers and welfare recipients who got JobKeeper and JobSeeker to pay it back because the government hates people ripping off. Even if they didn't rip off, because being non-corporate welfare recipients of welfare, they must have ripped off. Whereas Josh didn't even need to include a clawback clause in his JobKeeper legislation for caring employers because he knew they would never dream of ripping off. And big savings from the NDIS because the National Disability Insurance Scheme is out of control. We must make cuts if it is to survive. People with disabilities destroying the national economy. Selfish, selfish, selfish people with disabilities. And clearly, the government, Josh and Scummo and the team, want it to survive. But it can't survive if we have to spend money on it. Money we need for those nuclear underwater thingies. See, one problem they point out is that too many people are using the NDIS. So the answer is obvious. We need less people with disabilities. It's also just possible there may be too many women in the world as well, as too many women keep attacking Scummo and the team for not doing enough about, enough about equality at all levels. When the government, as an example, boasts how it has adopted the recommendations of the Women at Work report by its Sex Discrimination Commissioner, as if there is sex discrimination, but goodness, the government points out it has adopted a massive five recommendations out of just 66. And yet, thankless, thankless women turn that massive positive on its head and accuse the government of not adopting a mere 94% of the recommendations, showing some people just can't be pleased. Oh, and if you want to question my maths, okay, it's only 93.8%. Mentioned recently, poor Santosas the Prophets complaining that we need lots more coal seam gas in eastern Trublo Aussie and how its attempts to help out with its Narrabai proposal keep getting thwarted by all these pesky environmentalists dragging it before the courts. The same loud scaremongers upsetting Daniel Welsh on them. So what bad luck. Poor Santosas has been tossed a 373 and a half grand fine plus costs for nine breaches of its license even before it's had approval. Unsealed boreholes, boreholes in the wrong locations, and even bulldozing access tracks where they shouldn't create, where they shouldn't, creating loss of habitat, breaks in ecological connectivity, and disturbances to the ecosystem. God, it seems the courts have just got it in for them, doesn't it? Let's hope those loud scaremongers don't think this might indicate it could be worse if they actually had approval. After all, anyone can make a small mistake, or or uh, nine small mistakes. Finally, a beautiful poem to end the week. Truly delightful. John Keats Bleed. Rub-a-dub-dub, three men in a sub, pondering their proclivity to spread radioactivity while their minds wander to a disturbing ponder. After we've nuked the bad guy nations to protect and defend the Stars and Stripes corporations, when this sub's war is peace is complete, and it becomes obsolete, then the dilemma, we simply can't duck it, when war is peace becomes a rust bucket, a somewhat problematic factor, what do we do with the bloody reactor? Good afternoon. A satirist and a poet, Mr Kevin Healy. And don't forget, City Limits tomorrow, 9 o'clock on 3CR. Hi, we're the Marindas and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. 
Health for Profits is a campaign to oppose the Liberal Party's reckless drive to reopen, which threatens the health and safety of Australia's poor, working class and Indigenous communities. We demand an immediate return to a zero COVID elimination strategy before it's too late. Join us for online forums, activism and campaigns. To find out more, follow Health Before Profits Vic on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Health Before Profits is a 3CR supporter. Maritime Union of Australia is pleased to announce the Struggles That Made Us poster design prize. With a five grand first prize, the MUA is calling for submissions of a poster or artwork that addresses or is inspired by the struggles, events or historical figures amongst Australian maritime workers. The winning design will be launched on May Day 2022 and featured in a special May Day edition of Overland magazine. So get amongst it, people. Jump online and search for MUA Design Prize to enter. The Maritime Union of Australia is a proud 3CR supporter. As Joe Kumaleri put it, the Australia-US-UK Security Pact is another provocative alliance that can only end in blood and tears. The day after the announcement, which includes building nuclear submarines using US technology, etc., and abandoning the French subcontract, I spoke with Richard Tantor, Professor in the School of Political and Social Studies at the University of Melbourne. And I asked him first if the announcement was a total surprise. This was a complete bolt out of the blue, both politically and strategically. Politically, clearly, this has something to do with Morrison wanting to do a kind of bait and switch for the election that he wants to have, and he's in such a bad position because of his COVID response. Strategically, yes, it is a very big surprise because it's such a big move which really locks Australia into technologically and strategically into an American war against China. We had been leaning in that direction, but this is much bigger than anything else. And the measure of that is this is not a deal that Biden has offered to the governments of American allies like Japan or South Korea, which after all are frankly much more important militarily than Australia is. So this is a really big shift. Well, let's look at the people who might not be very happy about this. Start with New Zealand and the Pacific nations. New Zealand in particular will be extremely unhappy about this because New Zealand is one of the countries, one of the only country in the world which abandoned the benefits of American nuclear protection in the 1980s in a great disarmament move. And at the same time, they banned nuclear-powered vessels as well as nuclear-armed vessels and aircraft coming into their country. I really would quite like to have been a fly on the wall when Scott Morrison, with his jovial, G'day, how are you, mate? Talked to Jacinda Ardern, who is very deeply committed to the nuclear-free option in New Zealand 
And as many New Zealanders are, very proud of it. And I think, basically, Scotty from marketing just doesn't get it. Well, we've got a, a majority of the Pacific nations who have either signed or ratified the agreement against the treaty against nuclear weapons. What are they going to say about this? I think they're going to be very concerned about it, firstly, because it will absolutely ratchet up uh, Australia's involvement in tensions in the Pacific between the US and China. That's number one. Number two, the nuclear ban treaty, of course, is silent on the question of nuclear-powered warships and submarines, but it does express the interest of Pacific countries and most of the ASEAN countries, I have to say, in wanting the nuclear ban treaty to come into force, but to really take hold in a proper way on countries like Australia. So they will not be impressed by this move by the Australians. Has there been any announcement by ASEAN countries as yet? No, I've not seen any response yet, but um, I think we will hear in due course, particularly from Indonesia, which was not at all happy about the surprise of the US Marines being uh, bases being established or joint facilities being established at Darwin by Prime Minister Gillard back in 2013 or 2012, and they won't be happy about this. They're not at all in love with China. They've got their own arguments with China about the South China Sea, but they're not interested in military solutions to this, whereas Australia is making it very clear they're lining up with America in preparation for uh, military activities. And then there's the people of Adelaide and South Australia. Well, there's the Australian Submarine Corporation, or it's got a new uh, new name, but it's the same organisation that a former Liberal Minister of Defence said he wouldn't trust them to build a canoe. That's possibly unfair to the people who work there, I'm sure it is. On the other hand, there is a, a, a question of whether there are better uses for that set of skills and that capital than building weapons which are really not being going to be used in the defence of Australia, but rather the protection of American power. So I think for Adelaide, even if this bill comes to fruition, and I actually don't think it will, then uh, I think it's really something that Adelaide and South Australian government should think about much more carefully than Premier Marshall appears to have done to date. Really, we have no... The really important thing to understand, apart from the strategic consequences of this and lining us up with the Americans on China, is that we have absolutely no idea as a result of this trilateral agreement with the United States, Australia, and of all countries, Britain. We have no idea of really how many submarines are going to be built, how much they're going to cost, what the actual design requirements of them are, and in particular, we have no idea whatsoever of what arrangements are being made with the United States for the supply of this highly sensitive um, nuclear power or the nuclear submarine power generator and the propulsion system. This is highly sensitive technology which the United States has by and large not let out of the country except once to the British in the 1950s. We really have bought a pig in a poke and we've given them a blank cheque for it and that's not in the interest of either Australian taxpayers or Australian defence policy. I'm sure there are people also who question whether Morrison knows what he's got himself in for. Well, that's a very understandable thought. We've, but we learned this morning that there had been some consultation 
for example, with the Australian chief scientist, who was then Alan Finkel. There was consultation inside the Department of Defence and with the Chief of Defence Force, as you would expect. But the stress that the government, the line the government has been giving out is that this was kept extremely close in case it leaked and people reacted as they're reacting now. So your question about whether Prime Minister Morrison actually understood it, it's really very hard to know whether there is anything underneath Morrison's kind of blokey, Scotty from marketing exterior, and I mean that quite seriously. We have had conviction politicians in the past. You always knew that Tony Abbott, dislikable as much of what he believed may have been, actually had some convictions in politics. Certainly Gillard and Rudd had some. Certainly Keating did. I'm not sure you can say that's true about Morrison. Journalists have recently been pointing out that he's really become the ultimate pragmatist, where Anything that really strikes serious trouble or causes him great discomfort is quite likely to be junked. I think there's a good chance that this will be. I certainly hope so. I think you're quite right to ask the question, does he really understand it? My dealings with political leaders and fairly senior people over many years in Australia is often they do not understand what, for example, Pine Gap is actually about. They just don't know, and they've not taken the trouble to exercise the responsibility they have to do so. So you're quite right to be sceptical about what Morrison knows, and I think he's more concerned with the political advantages and the marketing of it. One commentator made the, the, the point that we're lining up even further with two superpowers on the way out. Britain's been on the way out for about a century or so, so there's this bizarre idea that Little England still matters. The United Kingdom is rapidly becoming disunited, so we don't know that. So uh, let's leave United Kingdom out of it. That's a sort of bit of political theatre, I suspect. The United States, it, you know, that we have often talked about the United States as a declining power. It has had a remarkable ability to come back, and particularly after defeats like Vietnam. It's just come out of another defeat uh, in Afghanistan, one which not only, of course, cost the Afghani people you know, 20 years of misery and war, but also had major effects in Australia, which we're still, still seeing in sort of veteran suicides and PTSD issues. Apart from that, though, the United States is undoubtedly still the world's leading military power. It's been challenged by China, especially in, in Asia, but worldwide, in economic terms, but still you'd have to say on balance, the United States has, if you like, deeper pockets of political capital and military capacity. What the Chinese are really challenging the United States on now militarily is not anything global or anything like competing with the Americans' eight or 900 bases outside the United States itself. I think the Chinese have got two at the moment. But rather, they are saying to the Americans, in the waters close to China, the waters from China to Japan, to China to Taiwan, China to the Philippines, they're not our waters, but you can't come in here as you used to with your aircraft carriers and your nuclear weapons, as President Clinton did in 1996 in the Taiwan crisis, when he parked a carrier group at the top and then at the bottom of the Taiwan Straits, 
the Chinese have got themselves the capacity to make that a very scary deal for the Americans. And that's partly what these submarines are really being put in place to try and help the Americans rectify. And of course, that's a huge challenge to China. And the Americans wouldn't accept it for one minute if a Chinese carrier group came off the coast of San Diego or San Francisco. And to further antagonise China, we've already lost a great deal of trade in the last year or so. They don't seem to get it that, you know, you can't do that to another big, powerful country and get away with it. We're finding out what these countries can do to each other. Now, remember, China's not the only country which, if you like, in, in the language they've actually used, which punishes Australia by cutting back its imports of, of coal uh, and other commodities. Uh, India um, uh, did exactly the same thing to Malaysia when under Prime Minister Mahathir a couple of years ago, Malaysia said it didn't approve of Indian actions in the disputed territory of Kashmir. As a result, Malaysian palm oil uh, was effectively banned from importing to India. So other countries do this sort of thing. I think at the moment we, the United States and China are still working out what they can and can't do to each other. I think in terms of Australia, we've just been unbelievably foolish diplomatically. It's one thing to say, look, you know, there may be questions to be asked about the origins of the coronavirus, both scientific ones and whether we were told everything immediately. We don't know. On the other hand, it's something quite different to say Australia will take the initiative to announce to the world that China is hiding something and that only a so-called independent inquiry led by Australia, United States and, and other countries can find out the truth. And the simple test of that is to reverse it, to say if uh, China demanded something like that of Australia, we wouldn't accept it in the same way. So we've been unbelievably foolish. Not surprisingly, the Chinese have pushed back very hard, and I think it's true they're making an example of Australia. Uh, but I think all of that was fairly easily avoidable. We walked into it uh, with eyes wide shut. We are doing the same thing once again. And relations with France, because they seem to be going pretty good until this. Well, certainly um, Australia in the last couple of years has had you know, three new best friends. Uh, one is Japan, one is France, and one is India. And we've signed agreements with all three of those countries to supply them with logistics. That's you know, equipment and refuelling and repairing if they're operating our world and giving them access to a number of Australian bases. And that's pretty close buddy-buddy stuff. And so um, underneath the Australia-US alliance, it's kind of second tier of either American allies or, in the Indian case, close to allies these days. Look, I think the French are really angry about what's happened. The reaction of the French, I think it's the French foreign prime minister, who said uh, the United States has once again, I think you also counted in Britain, has stabbed us in the back. That's a long-standing sort of Gaullist tradition of thinking in France since the Second World War. They'll get over it in one sense. Uh, they've just lost a $90 billion um, of export market, uh, but that was probably in trouble already because the cost overruns really have become outrageous. I think the other side of that is, though, that Australia, with American blessing, is forming a kind of network 
of maritime surveillance in the Indian Ocean with France and with India, and I said under American, with American blessing. So I think that part of it will trundle along. There'll be a lot of bad blood about the submarine order cancel, but uh, that was sheer, I think, American power politics. They saw an opening and they took it. You believe that this sub deal could go ahead or it might not go ahead in, well, in the future, but... It's, that's a very, it's very hard to know. I mean, I, whether, I think at the moment they're saying yes, but at the moment we have no... I mean, even the government has no idea of what they're actually talking about and they do appear to have signed pretty much a blank check because this morning uh, Finance Minister Simon Birmingham said, well, I think there might be eight submarines rather than the 12 we were going to get from France and no, we have no idea how much it's going to cost except it will be more than the French was going to, were going to cost because they're, they're better in some way. And this is an absurd thing to do. I mean, even $90 billion is a huge defence expenditure, much more than we spent on, say, the American fighter bombers, the F-35s, and, which was the most expensive aircraft in the world at that point. And the more you spend on these giant white elephants, or even, in, I think, because of the nuclear implications of the submarines, dangerous things which you can't really use for the defence of Australia the less you have to spend for things that we might actually need for the actual defence of Australia and as well as for uh, helping in the Pacific rather than some of the other things we sometimes do in the Pacific. So I think we don't, we don't know. We know. We know it's expensive. We don't know really whether a future government, and you know, the money won't go out in the lifetime of the Morrison government, we've no idea whether the governments will finally decide, oh, well, now we've looked at the sums, we would have to give up too much to do this or maybe we'll find that other governments are too angry with us about this and so we'll quietly pull our horns in. We don't know. The thing that people are missing about this and the Prime Minister is frankly being more than economical with the truth is that this is to do with American, with the politics, the nuclear politics, nuclear weapons politics of Northeast Asia. One use of the submarines, these hunter-killer submarines, if they are what the Americans say they're going to be for us, is that they're going to be out hunting Chinese ballistic missile submarines. The point about that in the ugly kind of logic of nuclear deterrence is that for the Chinese, who have about 300, 400 nuclear warheads compared with the American 4,500 Russians similarly, is that the Chinese have a very small nuclear arsenal which they regard as purely for deterrence purposes. There's lots to argue about about whether nuclear deterrence works, but certainly when you're facing you know, an imbalance of that order, the Chinese have got a lot to worry about. They know their land-based missiles are very vulnerable to the Americans. They can be found fairly readily whereas the missiles on board these submarines they're hoping will be the, the kind of invulnerable, protected second strike, which will dissuade the Americans because they can't be uh, found and destroyed very easily. The submarines the Australians are buying are supposed to be helping with exactly that. So China will think about it. The Australians are helping the Americans with what is literally an existential threat to them. So we can't expect them to be very nice to us for some time. Finally, Richard, 
the part of the agreement that Morrison said was we can, we'll have more US troops, that means more bases, more equipment. Is that part of the deal that we're going to get in the near future? The number of bases to which the United States has access in Australia has been growing quite steadily and is now really very considerable. More importantly, I think, we have been setting, allowing the Americans to set us up as a launch platform for American military operations in Southeast Asia and the South China Sea. Those Marines are not just there for training, they're partly there to train the Australians in in what the Americans call and the Australians now call um, interoperability so they can work very closely together and that's for projecting amphibious forces. That's what the US Marines do uh, in particular. We're doing more of that. We're going along with it. We're asking fewer questions. Our big intelligence bases, or the American intelligence bases like Pine Gap and the new facilities at Northwest Cape, the space surveillance radar and telescope there, these are all being engaged as part of what's now an American obsession about quote-unquote, reigning in China. So I think that's something that we have to be very, very cautious about now. Thank you so much. Nah, good on you, Jan. Take care. And Richard Tanter is Professor in the School of Political and Social Studies at the University of Melbourne. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Possum Portraits is a non-profit bereavement care service supporting parents who have lost a baby to miscarriage, stillbirth and neonatal death. We provide families with hand-drawn, commemorative keepsake portraits of their baby free of charge. In support of our mission, we are hosting a community fundraising raffle. The prize draw will be held on November 6th. Prizes include a $300 Gorman online shop voucher, hampers, term memberships for kids' music and activity classes, and much more. To buy your raffle tickets, head to possumportraits.com.au forward slash events and win some great prizes while supporting an important cause. Possum Portraits is a 3CR supporter. The Rosing Peace Festival, a festival of over 30 organisations devoted to the pursuit of peace, was held online last week. One of the many participants was Mujib Abid, Master of Peace and Conflict Studies at Sydney University, who recently returned from a visit to Kabul. I asked Mujib first when it was he first came to Australia and the circumstances. I came to Australia in June 2013. I came for my studies. I came to do a postgraduate degree and Peace and Conflict Studies at the University of Sydney. It was part of a scholarship that was organized by the Sydney Peace Foundation and uh, some groups of people from the Afghan community in Sydney. Uh, I had just finished my undergrad in Kabul at the time, so it was sort of an ideal, time-wise as well, it was quite ideal to sort of make the transition. And I have been living here 
basically ever since, though over the last couple of years I've been visiting uh, home in Afghanistan as well, uh, like sort of more regularly than I would have in those first couple of years. Talk about what life was like back in 2013 and, and before that, where you were studying, what you were studying, what your family was doing. Part of the program, the scholarship program uh, that I was in, uh, it was basically designed to train, you know, an Afghan uh, young person, I imagine, at the time, essentially in the art of peacemaking and, and you know, Pax, peace and conflict studies as a discipline as a, as a, and as a practice. Uh, and I just remember finding myself in the company of some absolutely brilliant people who were principled, who were like scholarly, basically at a place which, you know, I could easily look up to and I could, it was sort of a source of inspiration. They had a long, this is, I'm referring to Center for Peace and Conflict Studies at University of Sydney, by the way. It was a community of activists and activist scholars and community organizers and people who had been sort of active in different spaces since at least the 80s. Uh, I just remember being very, you know, just just feeling grateful and just trying to learn as, as much as I could at the time. And as I was here, my family obviously were back home in Kabul. And by 2013, the security situation wasn't uh, very good. So it, it was a bit of a juggle to sort of navigate the two worlds. I had very little experience traveling internationally before coming to Australia as well. So, yeah, so I just uh, I just remember being part of an amazing community of people here. But at the same time, even back then, my commitment to my family and just really the society as a whole, I was a product of it. I came from, uh, from, from that place, from Kabul in particular. And it was not always easy, let's say, but it was also a very rewarding experience just from the get-go. Just talk about life growing up in Kabul. I grew up, I was born in, 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 a, in a smaller province south of Kabul. It's called Logar. And until 2008, we had almost sort of like, we sort of had like two places that we would call home. So it was my, my larger family's home or family home in Logar. So we would usually spend the weekends there and we had, a, you know, the sense of community, the sort of more traditional approach to organization of society, the stronger bonds, social cohesion, perhaps. Uh, it just resonated with me and it resonated certainly with my family and hence they were adamant that we ought to continue to have a relationship to the place which my parents had left sort of in, in, in the 90s themselves. And then there was life in Kabul, which, you know, had its own tempo, had sort of its own wavelength. I remember in 2008, when I had just finished school, I got a job and it was quite an eye-opening experience because we worked closely with the Afghan government and its military installations, or uh, its, its military force. But I was just like this 17, 18-year-old young kid who was, I felt like it was, it was a very interesting learning experience at that time. But then in 2008, and again, this speaks to the intensity of the conflict and perhaps how the growing conflict started affecting individual lives in a much more sort of visceral way. Because in 2008, one of my uncles, he was kidnapped and tortured, and they demanded quite a hefty amount of money 
from my family. And although he was released and no money was exchanged, uh, but I think the experience had a profound impact on my on my family and their sort of collective trajectory because ever since then we never returned back to our our birthplace. It was basically we we felt like we were exiled from the place that we would call home, and and you could always go back, you know, for different reasons to seek refuge, safety from the chaos of Kabul, but also for like the things I said, like community and and, and so on and so forth. But uh, since 2008, we just never went back, and uh, life sort of took its own kind of course in Kabul, uh, the hustle and bustle of the urban city scape kind of started becoming the only norm you know like in like again i imagine this was true for millions of others we essentially shrunk our world to the you know seemingly safety of kabul uh, which is why what would happen in 2021 in august with the taliban takeover for many 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 families that sort of last space of of safety or refuge they were stripped of that right uh, and hence i suppose the desire to abandon home and choose exile your interest in peace and peace studies did you have a mentor i uh, i did and i do and i i met like i said a bunch of wonderful people incredibly established faces and figures and uh, I felt very honored that I was chosen for the program. It was a very competitive program, and I still maintain close ties with uh, my friends from from the center. I wouldn't name them if that's okay, or I mean, I I I can. I don't mind naming them as well. But you know, people like Wendy Lamborn and Letitia Anderson, Jake Lynch, Stuart Rees, the wonderful Stuart Rees. These are people, and and. Uh, you know, a multitude of other people who I'm proud to call uh, mentors and friends and associates. You'll be pleased to know that Stuart Reese is a, pre- a regular on this program. I'm not surprised at all. He is a gem of a man. But there were other people in Kabul also working for peace and working with young people. So we have to be careful because the language of peace building as a project, as, a, as an intervention, uh, has been appropriated, if we can call it that. But also, you know, I think it has its own politics. It operates within a particular cultural and political landscape, globally and then locally. So really, from, the, from quite early on, the intervention, the occupation of Afghanistan, going all the way back to October of 2001, uh, literally a month after the terrorist attacks in in New York and Pentagon. The intervention was framed using a particular discourse, a particular language, and peace building was at the center of that because it it, it was a frame of reference that could be operationalized under the auspices of the United Nations and Afghanistan. The Western intervention was legitimized by the UN Security Council. So from then on, uh, the language of of peace and peacemaking and peace building would be deployed in many ways, unfortunately, in support of the what I would call the real agenda of the Western occupation of, of, of my country, which was uh, the security imperative. So it was the war on terror. 
so in that sense, uh, I think we have to be very sensitive when we talk about peace, peacemaking as, as a practice and as a cultural attitude or, or disposition. But I like to think that surpassing all that institutional interventionism and the violences that they enact in the name of peace and its deliverance, countering all of that and in many ways transcending all of, of all of that violent language and practice, uh, there exists smaller communities which are usually funded, sup- supported by individuals in their own capacity and as a result of their own commitment to a very principled sort of approach to peace, uh, coexistence, fellowship, um, understanding, the sort of conciliatory tone that the Western intervention and occupation never quite accommodated and in many ways never quite could accommodate. But these communities have existed, and I'm very uh, glad that I've been a part of some of them and continue to be in my own capacity, because I see a lot of potential for imagining peaceful futures uh, in these smaller local communities of peace activists who actually are concerned with their immediate and and the local as opposed to having sort of grand meta visions uh, or projects that could be global and scale. I think there's always, I believe, from a theoretical perspective, or an ideological perspective, if you want to call it that, that, uh, you know, the bigger the scope of our projects and our visions get, the less attentive we are to lived experience of people, which is essentially what matters the most. But also, I think, the more the desire to engulf and hegemonize and, and take over and assimilate those who we consider to be other to us. So so this the short version of it, countering the violence of peace building proper and state building and nation building and you know lots of examples of it this whole development agenda and the violence that that developmentalism uh, could enact by, by way of operationalizing european humanist ideals i think countering all of that there have existed local communities that are sort of self-driven and could keep sort of that significant uh, independence of action and thought, uh, which, uh, which again, I think is very significant. Were you in contact with Dr. Hakim? He's a dear friend of mine. I've known him for years and years now. I am in constant contact with Dr. Hakim of the Afghan Peace Volunteers, absolutely. And every time I visit Kabul, I like to spend time with them, and they're a wonderful and inspiring bunch of people. So it's an absolute pleasure every time I get to do something with them, whether it's a small time, like a short-term project, or whether it's uh, taking part in some of those phone calls, which I'm sure you are aware of, or whether it is any sort of any anything else, any like material kind of support that I can I can extend their way using my own relative degree of privilege, I suppose, like we all do in some ways. I I think it's an absolute privilege. To work with them. Just talk about some of those young people because some of them would have been about the same age as you or a little bit younger. A lot of them, a majority of them are quite younger than me. Uh, they are sort of in their late teens, 20s, early 20s. I'm a 30-year-old man now. So, But I got in 2013 and 14 when I began my association with them, and, you know, I was kind of more or less their age perhaps. 
Uh, look, there, I am always in awe of their courage and uh, their sort of sense of intuitiveness about not allowing their world, their sort of cultural world in particular, because materially a lot of them have no other alternative but to live in Kabul. And obviously that is, you know, the story of the, an absolute majority of Afghans, which is why I get a little cross with people who perhaps focus too much on, on the accounts of perhaps the diasporic Afghans and those who have the privilege, like myself, to go in and out. But the absolute majority do live there, and that's the only life that is familiar to them, and that is perfectly fine. And, of course, there's a lot of contentment that comes with that. But, look, uh, to, to see that they are adamant that their world is not, uh, you know, their, their sort of cultural uh, or knowledge perspectives are not rendered limited uh, just by their immediate surroundings, but uh, there is this in critical, inquisitive potential or critical mass that I've always noticed and been quite uh, impressed by with, with a lot of them. My hope would be that with the political landscape changing in such a dramatic fashion, that uh, they can continue functioning, being around, providing a community of support for one another for years and years and years to come. We had some other projects in mind. We had been working on it. Unfortunately, they might be on hold for a while because um, until there is some clarity. But APVs themselves, they, I think, I hope that they will uh, continue to be in existence. I've mentioned the name of Dr. Ha Kim. Can you explain to the listeners who he is? He is a Singaporean medical doctor uh, and of course, he would be the ideal person to speak to his condition. But uh, I can just give you a quick snapshot of, of who he is. He goes to Pakistan uh, basically to serve communities of displaced peoples, Afghans, in there. And from there, he's inspired to, because some of his friends, they decide to go back to Afghanistan, some members of the Afghan community. And he basically decides to drop everything and go to Bamiyan, which is in central Afghanistan. And from Bamiyan, a couple of years later, they move to Kabul, basically uh, build this safe space for themselves and start calling themselves the Afghan Peace Volunteers. And uh, the community has been in existence ever since. <laughs> when I first met him, I remember... I was like, I genuinely thought he is just another Afghan. And that is a credit to him because, and nothing artificial, this is all like that, or at least this is how I believe. Uh, I think it's all a genuine desire and an earnest kind of drive to learn the Afghan language, to come to understand certain perhaps what might from the outside look peculiar uh, cultural traits uh, and that are common in Afghan society. And uh, he has immersed himself in that community of people and the wider Afghan society to such an impressive degree, but not like an anthropologist would or not like your typical visiting scholar would or even an activist. I think uh, I was 
totally like gobsmacked about like whether he was an Afghan or not until I I had to ask him I think a little later and he would tell me his story. I'm speaking with Mujib Abid, Afghan peace activist and academic, now living in Australia, but recently returned from a visit to Afghanistan. Well, on the other hand, you had to leave your culture, come to a very different place. How difficult was that for you? Well, I like to think that I haven't left my culture. I like to think that, you know, this sort of metaphorical, that's the metaphor of the emigre as uh, as someone who fits into two or multiple cultural sites at once, uh, who can navigate between multiple cultural worlds. I think I see potential in that, but also at the same time, I see potential in the a metaphorical conception of homelessness. I, in fact, I feel myself more at home with the metaphor of the homeless, as opposed to that. individual who can find themselves at home, presumably at multiple places at once. So I haven't really left home. I, I like to think that I like to think that I, despite crossing the artificial borders that are there to control and police and organize, uh, I suppose not always in a savory way, that despite crossing those borders, we can still maintain close, meaningful and sort of a, a dialogical, perhaps, relationship with our cultural homes or bases and back home. Uh, that being said, coming in here, uh, of course it was a bit of a shock, and of course it would take some time to sort of get a sense of, uh, you know, get my bearings about, I suppose, in terms of how much there was in Sydney at the time that was different what I had known or what was familiar and legible to me. On the other hand, because, and this is, I, I think this is a place uh, as better as it can get to talk about this, I was a product of a deeply politicized university. It's called, I don't know if you've heard of it, Jan, but it's called the American University of Afghanistan. It was essentially a project by USAID and a bunch of their ad, other ultra-liberal and quite aggressively pro-war on terror uh, donors, donor organizations. It was designed to produce a class of quote-unquote Afghan leaders who would think like us, who would, who would be totally psychologically, culturally, and materially, materially invested in the state-building agenda and in the war on terror. Uh, that's the sort of institution I came from. And our faculty members and instructors were almost exclusively American, or even if they were African-Americans, they had uh, basically, they had very little uh, genuine interest in the local dynamics and our own cultural priorities. So in, in many ways, I also felt kind of prepared, but of course, it's one thing to feel a certain way, it's another thing to experience it. And how did you fit into the peace and conflict studies course? I think quite well, because uh, the reason I, I even applied for the scholarship was because I had done a class, I remember, an introductory level unit uh, back in my undergrad years on peace and conflict studies. So I was sort of principally or politically invested in the agenda. 
quite early on and then to come in here and of course to see it that it's not of course and it wasn't that was never the assumption even back then that an introductory level course will teach you everything there is about an entire discipline and practice but i felt like you know that little experience had helped me i also had worked by then by the time i came here in for two research organizations or ngos uh, that had at least nominally given a nod of approval to peace building. And again, it was very conventional and deeply problematic in both cases. But I was familiar with some of the tropes and language and frames of reference. And then when you come here, of course, a lot of that gets critiqued. And But just for me, though, it was uh, I think I could draw on some of that experience and some of that basic knowledge to kind of give me... Not a head start per se, but just give me help to tra- make the transition a little smoother than it could have been. How long were you here in Australia before you you made your first trip back home? Well, the first time it was a year, under a year actually, uh, seven eight months, and then this other time it was a little while. So it was 2018 when I went back, so, and then afterwards. It was basically once or twice a year for different reasons. Uh, like uh, there would be obviously family visits, and I'm a very family-oriented person, Jan. And I'm, I'm sure the conflict and the unpredictability of the political landscape at home contributed to that sense of duty a great a great deal. But I would, from 2018 onwards, I would, I would go and visit a lot more regularly. Were you the only member of your family who left? At the time, yes, I was the only one, and I was the first one as well, uh, and my whole extended family. So it was quite a significant event for many reasons, that being one of the bigger ones. Uh, but then after me, uh, a brother of mine, uh, him and his wife, and at the time their only child, they migrated to U.S. like a year or so after me, and they live in the U.S. now. You've been going back since 2014, is that right? Well, I was back in 2014, and then I didn't go for a couple of years, and then basically more consistently since 2018. What is your purpose in going back apart from family? Are you also working for the people? Well, no, not really, because ever since 2017-18, I've been working on my PhD here full-time at the University of Queensland and so obviously I had this commitment and I've been teaching on and off at various Australian universities as well. So the purpose of the family of the visits were primarily visiting the family, some research related but obviously you mix those things up. It is also sort of my own desire to, to go back and be around a lot that's going on and sort of get to experience the place and the changes that it was going through. I, I always thought it was very important to do that. So it was sort of a, an amalgamation of different reasons and factors that, that would influence uh, my, my visits, my decision to visit, I suppose. And what changes were you seeing? Well, uh, I, I think certainly, you know, you could clearly, I think, sense that there was the mood was shifting and not uh, in a sort of positive direction let's say 
started from let's say a couple of years ago when I could move freely at at least to like uh, you know places like Jalalabad and Panjshir who are not that far from Kabul but that's a bit of a drive I remember being able to like sort of visit those places or just in the city of Kabul as well despite all types of security threats and like sort of just crime rate being quite high uh, and quite alarming. But like it started as, let's say, being more manageable. And then as the years uh, sort of started piling up, you could sense that something quite dramatic was happening to the point where this last time around, so this past July, like uh, two months ago now or so, at one point I felt like that someone had installed um, a magnet bomb in my car. Uh, so they had this horrible episodes where I thought the car that I was driving in was compromised, which luckily turned out to not be the case. But just seeing a lot a lot more of, of, of these sort of security risks being less and less abstract and more and more immediate and real and kind of becoming an observable fact in your immediate vicinity, if that makes any sense. And this extends to the sort of accounts that I would hear as well, whether it was from Logar, which I continued and continue to have a vested interest, I suppose a closer vested interest in, in knowing about and keeping my ears close to the ground. But just the type of narrative that I would hear, the loss, people, the violence, the intensifying conflict to the point where the insurgents were at the gates of Kabul and the Kabul government basically fell apart. How were your parents and your family getting on the last time you were there? They were very anxious, rightfully so, of course. For a while now, all sorts of talks about exile and leaving home and migrating. The change in the mood that I'm referring to certainly a lot of it has to do with how my parents and my family would respond to to the political situation, you know, whereby they went from a case of, look, it's bad, but it's manageable, and this is the way things are, to, you know, later on, like, we need to do something and we do something now before we run out of time. And sort of the immediacy of that threat was something that was very visible with them. And even as I say that, my my family, my parents in particular, like they they have visited elsewhere, they have seen bits and parts pieces of the world, but they have primarily lived in Afghanistan since early nineties, ninety two, ninety three. So it's obviously very difficult for people in their age to seriously start pondering about their options, about a decision as dramatic as uh, leaving home. But that, that's basically how intense and visceral the political situation had gotten. What do you hope to do now that the Taliban are in charge? Well, it's, it's a tough one and we'll have to wait and watch and see how things unfold. It unfortunately is not a lot of promising developments. There is certainly, I think there was perhaps more of uh, a sense of hope that at least conflict and it's more uh, sort of naked or, or nakedly violent or material sense of the word violent warfare or violent conflict will will come to an end. But then there is 
you know, peace is not just the cessation of violence uh, or just the cessation of, I suppose, direct violence. Uh, it is about safety, uh, access to basic rights. Those are the things that we would have to work on for years to come. You can't do that by disengagement uh, or perhaps a, a sort of disinterest. Uh, and, and the people and the leadership, uh, the new leadership perhaps, I, I do hope, you know, I, I, again, this is just now, so things could change quite dramatically. But I, I'm not prepared to say goodbye forever. Uh, my work doesn't allow me to do that. My research interests would not allow me to do that. And my own commitment, perhaps, uh, as I imagine does a lot of other Afghans' commitment to their home and their country and their, their people, their own people as well, would not allow them to abandon home and hope. I think that's uh, one of the worst things that could happen is to grow so pessimistic about what is possible that you stop imagining peaceful futures and better futures. You know, I, I do hope that I'd find ways over time. One of the things that I've always wanted, Jan, was to teach at a university in Kabul to work with Afghan students. Uh, that is something that right now looks quite outside the realm of possibility, but I haven't given up hoping that it could be possible at some down the line. What is the House of Safety? It's a charity, uh, a, a newly created charity organization that's run by a couple of my dear friends. It's actually run by a number of people who, would, who had jobs of their own until the political recent political upheaval. And so they're all like basically sitting at home having very little to do in terms of work and whatnot. And I ap approached them because I had a little funds given to me by some friends who wanted me to spend it on the IDPs, on the internally displaced Afghans. The images, I think, were coming out of Afghanistan and I may have affected some people more than others or for whatever reason. Uh, and I approached the, these friends of mine and then they quickly put together this organization but I was just so impressed at sort of how much they managed to make of, of how little funds I managed to transfer to them. They went out and made a list of a bunch of families in these sort of places in the heart of downtown Kabul. And then uh, a little later, they went out and made a list of like shopping items that they're shopping, organized everything, and delivered sort of some necessary basic food items to these people, to these families, and made a report for me. And I was just so impressed by that that I thought I'm going to continue working with them. Because right now, look, in Afghanistan, as much as the problem is one that perhaps based in symbols and cultural sort of dispositions and ideals, the crisis itself is quite visceral. The humanitarian crisis is quite real. Some indications speak of poverty rate as high as 97, 98% in, in the near future, very near future, unless we do something about that. And of course, there would be, you know, there's this scope and space for us to lobby our government, get them to do their part, but also at an individual level. And I'm a big believer in individual agency and embodied experiences. And so at an individual as well, I feel like I at least feel a sense of obligation. For those of us privileged enough to be able to navigate the world of, you know, let's say the haves or the have-nots, uh, and that's, I know it's a big generalization, 
but for those of us nonetheless who can navigate between those two worlds with a little more ease than others, then I feel like we have an obligation to turn ourselves into bridges that would allow for an inflow of material resources back to the places that are suffering because of a lack of access to basic needs. I, I think I'm committed to working with House of Peace. Uh, hopefully in the years to come, we'll hopefully make a difference in at least some people's lives. Are you looking for other people to join you? I do. My hopes are tied to galvanizing enough, enough support uh, or perhaps believers in, in this small group of people in Kabul uh, the way that I believe in them. And I feel like that is what would make all the difference there is. Because, as you know, it's all about volunteering our time. It's all about believing that human touch, human agency can actually make a difference. It doesn't always have to be systematic. It doesn't always have to be a massive intervention. Because, like I was saying at the beginning of our chat, the bigger uh, an intervention it is, the more likelihood of it actually producing, sometimes anyway, producing the sort of violence and hegemony that it aims to tackle. If there are friends out there, if you're keen, if you have time, if you have access to resources, uh, if you just are interested in doing something and helping, please get in touch. Uh, I would uh, absolutely love to hear from you. Well, that's through my mobile number, 0432676321, or that could also be through my email or the organization's email, which I will send to you, Jan, and you can perhaps post it on whatever platform it is you're using. Just finally, in your own mind as a, a student of peace and conflict studies, did you in a way prepare yourself for the Taliban coming back? I did. I think uh, all the way back in June, July, perhaps even earlier, I could sense that something quite dramatic was about to happen and that it wasn't going to bode well for a lot of people. And my trust in the Americans and their allies, the so-called international community, to manage this final chapter of the war on terror in a sensible or responsible way was really at, at an all-time low. I knew that they would perhaps prioritize the well-being and safety of the men and women in uniform, their own soldiers, over everything else, which is kind of what happened. I was hoping to be prepared for that, and the end didn't quite turn out that way. And there were those of us, let's say, who were following the developments in Afghanistan closely. And I think all the way back in May, June, it was quite clear that uh, a lot of things were going to change this year, and a Taliban takeover is uh, quite possible and perhaps imminent reality. Look, I want to thank you for having me on the show, Jan. I enjoyed our chat. And to the listeners, be interested in Afghanistan. Don't allow this, what some are perhaps quite pessimistically already projecting. They have a point, perhaps they don't, but they do claim that, you know, Afghanistan is right now in the media. It's only momentary. It's a flash in the it's because of what it means for the Western world more than what it means for Af Afghanistan or Afghans. But let's just all, I think continue to have these conversations, continue to remain invested. Let's not forget about a society that is in the condition that it is primarily because of our collective doing or what our governments have done in our name. That engagement or that interest uh, could go a long way 
in the protecting Afghans back home who are at the mercy of the Taliban, could go a long way in holding Taliban to account in that sense. But it could, it could also go a long way in holding our own government here in the West to account so that another war on terror, another society like Afghanistan is not put through a similar condition for two decades, three decades, four decades. My call to all the listeners would be one of vigilance and active engagement. And thanks to Mujib Ibid, Master of Peace and Conflict Studies from Sydney University. And if you'd like to help with the House of Safety, the Gmail address is houseofsafety01 at gmail.com. And as Mujib said, his phone number is 0432-676-321. And his Gmail is M-U-J-I-B-I-B-I-D at gmail.com. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. 855 AM. Twenty Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside, I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcast. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. Well, all the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what, that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app or listen live each Monday at midday. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law, 6pm Tuesdays. CR here to stay. On the program last week, the focus was on the largest country in South America, Brazil. Today, we travel to one of the many neighbours of Brazil, and that's Peru, where elections were held recently, resulting in the election of Pedro Castillo, a 51-year-old former teacher and union leader, by a very slim majority. So today, student and activist and broadcaster Sasha Gillies-Lakakis will look at 
Peruvian history, the election process, and the likelihood or not of change in Peru. Sasha, where do you have a starting point for an understanding of history for us today? I would say that the most pivotal date in terms of Peru's history is 1968. Prior to that point, Peru had actually followed the history or the historical pattern of a lot of Latin American countries. It had chiefly been run by pro-US oligarchic parties uh, or outright, you know, it was just it was just dictatorship in a lot of cases up until 1968. Now, in 1968, uh, we have the government of Fernando Belaunde, who was a right wing politician, overthrown by the military and the general Juan Velasco takes power. This particular general uh, sort of breaks with the pattern that we've seen across Latin America. Um, in the, he's actually a very progressive individual and he's actually a left-wing nationalist. So he's not overthrowing a progressive government to reinstate military dictatorship. He's actually overthrowing a right-wing government to begin a series of pro-working class and pro-poor and pro-Indigenous reforms. So he overthrows the government of Belaunde in 1968 um, he establishes a military dictatorship with himself at the head. But the, the range of reforms that he implements is really actually quite impressive. Uh, firstly, he goes about nationalising the key industries that Peru's economy relies on, uh, the chief one being, of course, mining. Peru is an absolute cornucopia of minerals. Uh, both minerals, they're useful for manufacturing and for, and for producing products like lead and copper and also precious minerals like gold and silver. You can find all of those in abundance in Peru. Also, of course, uh, Peru has some petroleum reserves of its own, and there are also plantations that produce cotton, that produce coffee, and a range of other agricultural products. And what he does with, with these agricultural lands in particular is he divides them amongst, well, government plots, and he divides them amongst indigenous families and communes. And about 300,000 indigenous families end up benefiting. They actually receive a parcel of land for their family or for their community for the first time in hundreds of years. So this is actually a really significant policy that Velasco introduces. And the other key aspect of his, of his time in office is that he adopts an independent foreign policy. Peru is well, was well known before this point and sadly after Velasco is, uh, is known for its subservience to the United States. But Velasco changes that. He ends up severing ties with, uh, with the United States at one point. They actually get into a, a short maritime conflict over Peru's fishing waters uh, because US companies had been allowed to trawl through Peruvian waters and essentially steal Peruvian fish. Velasco put an end to that. He actually fired on US commercial vessels and there was a severing of, rela of relations for quite some time. He also established relations with Cuba. There were two particularly devastating earthquakes later on during his presidency in the early 70s that the Cuban medics uh, helped alleviate. They were said to help with the recovery in Chile. When the coup happened in 1973, Velasco warned Pinochet not to, uh, not to punish leftists and not to punish other individuals in Peru, or he may consider invading Santiago. Now, of course, this was a very big threat that ultimately Velasco didn't, didn't follow through on, but it certainly set the tone for relations between this, you know, on the one hand, a right-wing general like Pinochet, and on the other hand, Velasco, who was actually playing a very progressive role in the region. Now, unfortunately, he is couped himself in 1975 by other members of the military, by conservative members of the military. They cite supposed abuses of human rights, a lack of democratic participation in terms of actually being able to go and vote, and 
a, a gradually uh, worsening economy. That's chiefly because of the earthquake that occurred and also all of the capital flight that occurred because Velasco was finally putting Peruvians first and actually retaking control of Peruvian industry. And it didn't help that in 1975, Velasco himself became very, very ill, and he actually died uh, quite soon after this coup against him. And then from 1975 to 1980, you essentially have a period of military rule. These generals who were supposedly going to restore democracy do no such thing for at least five years. They do, however, lay the groundwork for reprivatizing Peru's national industries and for taking away the communal lands of Indigenous people that Velasco had introduced. And by 1980, they stage a highly managed election. It, it is a rigged election. And Fernando Belaunde, who was overthrown in 1968, wins again with the backing of these conservative generals. And then he begins a pro the program of privatisation in full. So he begins to take apart the state monopoly on mining, uh, on agricultural land. He re-permits uh, US vessels and European vessels to come and start fishing, or I, I would like to say plundering resources. He devalues Peru's currency and actually switches currency three times to try and make it more competitive. None of that works and hyperinflation becomes rampant. The economy spirals, unemployment grows immensely. And what we have as a result is a really terrible situation for most poor Peruvians throughout the 1980s. This is the period in which we see the emergence of firstly a very well-known group both in Peru and, and abroad, which is the Shining Path or the Sendero Luminoso, which is a Maoist guerrilla movement. And on the other hand, the Tupac Amaru revolutionary movement, which is more indigenous focused in terms of its policies and in terms of its membership. And they actually established themselves as a, as a sort of opposition to the Shining Path. Now, during this period, it's a very complex period and it often isn't it often isn't studied properly because there's a lot of propaganda around around these two movements, particularly in terms of the best known one, the Shining Path. There is no doubting that the Shining Path first emerged as a movement um, attempting to overthrow the corrupt oligarchy in Peru and, of course, the corrupt military regime that had, that had allowed it to retake power in the 1980s. Unfortunately, they were incredibly hostile to a lot of other progressive groups and leftist groups. They actually did end up killing a lot of indigenous activists as well. And, you know, by, by the conclusion of the war in the early 90s, uh, unfortunately, I personally don't believe that they had very much to offer Peru. They were widely viewed as terrorists. That was in large part also due to propaganda, but also because they were quite brutal to a lot of everyday Peruvians. Now, I would say the Tupac Amaru revolutionary movement was, was definitely a genuine, a genuine revolutionary movement right through to its dissolution. It was, it was really invested in defending Indigenous rights, in restoring the communal rights of Indigenous Peruvian families and community groups that Velasco had introduced. And it did also run along Marxist-Leninist lines in a lot of its economic and social policy. Indigenous activists and other progressive activists, they actually ended up supporting these individuals, they actually ended up defending them, and they helped establish in indigenous communities what are called ronderos, or they're sort of like community watch groups or community patrol groups, where indigenous peasants would essentially protect their communities, not only from the shining path, but more, more severely the um, anti-terrorist, quote-unquote, operations of the Peruvian military and the Peruvian police force. Because this is the other thing that isn't mentioned. Throughout the 1980s, 
and we'll see in the 90s it gets even worse. The Peruvian government grants excessive powers to the military and the police force to deal with even suspected terrorists. So there are a number of bloody massacres, um, particularly in the Peruvian highlands where indigenous communities predominate. Even at uh, the National University of Peru, there are raids where, where students and teachers were killed. And as I said, it was, even, it was even enough to be suspected of being a Marxist or suspected of being a collaborator of either the Shining Path or the Tupac Amaru movement to be killed or detained without trial and tortured by the military. Now, throughout the 1980s, Belaunde and later his, uh, his protege, Alan Garcia, in the later half of the 80s, they promise that they're going to curb these excesses, these abuses of power. Of course, that never happens. And the situation deteriorates. I mean, when, when the Shining Path is met with this violence, they increase their violence dramatically. Until by the 1990s, at the start of the 1990s, you have a situation which is akin to civil war. Thousands of people have died and people are desperate and they're looking for a way out. So in 1990, we have the electoral victory of Alberto Fujimori. Now, Fujimori, he's a wealthy individual. A lot of the Japanese immigrants in Peru are. And he runs on two chief platforms. One, he promises to increase the war against the Shining Path and against Peruvian indigenous groups and progressive movements. And two, he promises to implement harsh privatisation laws and austerity laws, supposedly to get Peru's economy back on track. Now, this election has a very low turnout. It's chiefly just people in the cities, in Lima, that actually vote in this election. Um, of course, most of the regional areas are off limits because of the civil war. People can't go about their daily lives, let alone line up to vote in those areas. So he ends up winning by a considerable margin. And what he does is in 1992, just two years after he takes office, he dissolves parliament. He dissolves his own parliament because they were impeding the extreme anti-terrorism laws he was looking to introduce, and he gives himself and the military total power in Peru. This essentially allows the abuses to multiply tenfold. And not only that, it allows him to pass through his anti-working class, his anti-Indigenous and pro-austerity economic policies. Um, he essentially privatises most, if not all, businesses in Peru, including the central bank, which had, which had previously actually been off limits, even to right-wing governments. And in terms of attracting foreign investment, this works. Obviously, American companies, European companies, companies from other Latin American countries flock to Peru because of the terrible working conditions, the low wages, and all of these other things that are associated with, of course, neoliberalism. In fact, I would say Fujimori is, was the most neoliberal Latin American leader, apart from Pinochet, perhaps. And... Of course, the, the war against the Shining Path, which, of course, for Fujimori also meant all progressive movements and all left-wing political forces, ends up taking 50,000 to 70,000 lives. So 50,000 to 70,000 people end up being killed during this conflict, the vast majority in the 90s after Fujimori takes power. Now, he wins election again in 1995, so he's allowed to continue with this campaign of purges. And as we'll see later, he actually also had a plan called Plan Verde, which was created you know, in conjunction with the military and the security service to sterilise 450,000 Indigenous women. Now, this was just a plainly fascistic policy. It was an attempt to breed out Indigenous people because the elite in Peru, both the Japanese immigrant elite and also the whiter criollo elite, who the, the European descendants, Peruvians, it was just an attempt by them to essentially breed out the Peruvian indigenous population, which they deem to be 
an inferior race. It was exactly a type of fascism. And 250,000 women ended up being forcibly sterilised. Their lives just absolutely turned upside down overnight. And they had no say whatsoever. They were taken by the military to these remote camps and to remote hospitals out in the countryside. And they were just sterilised there and then without any sort of any sort of recourse, no legal support whatsoever. And it, it was just a horrific time for Peruvians. But of course, by the end of the 90s, Fujimori's really hardline militaristic approach, I suppose, to the Shining Path does actually bear fruit. He does defeat the Shining Path. He essentially breaks, for a time, the major left-wing forces in Peru's political scene. The Shining Path does still exist even to this day, but they're a very fractured movement. They've gone into hiding in the most remote areas of the country. So they're not really, they're not a factor anymore, and they haven't been since Fujimori essentially defeated them in the late 1990s. Just before we go into the 20th century, Sasha, a hostage taking at the Japanese embassy. How significant was that? This was quite significant. And look, it wasn't the only incidents of the Shining Path doing this and, and of these sorts of really, you know, high-profile um, diplomatic incidents in Peru at the time. But significant because it, is, it was a display, you know, it was a direct, very intimate business and political links to a number of Japanese politicians, Japanese business interests, and, and you know, other, other um, individuals in the Japanese political scene, because he himself, of course, came from Japan. His parents came from Japan, and, and they were quite wealthy individuals. So it's not like they came with nothing, like a lot of, for example, Chinese migrant um, labourers uh, in Latin America. His was a well-connected family. This not only sort of was a direct challenge a direct attack against Fujimori because, of course, the, the selection of the Japanese embassy was deliberate because Fujimori was identified with, with Japan. But as a high-profile international incident, it really did bring, I suppose, international attention to what was happening in Peru, you know, because, of course, the United States was more than happy to let uh, Fujimori do as he pleased, particularly because he was just massacring leftists. But, of course, this event, you know, really did show people that not all was well in Peru, that there was a cost against the left and against the Shining Path in particular. And as I said, you know, uh, these sorts of events also went in the reverse. For a time, uh, the Cuban embassy in Peru was attacked by pro-Fujimori individuals uh, on multiple occasions, actually, in the 80s and the 90s, as a display of sort of like anti-leftist hate. So it's, it's a strategy that, that was used quite a lot in Peru, but it was definitely, yes, an indication of the severity and the gravity of the situation in Peru, that it reached, you know, that it did have international ramifications in a sense. Well, we're now in the 21st century. Fujimori doesn't last too much longer there. He flees to Japan. Why was that? Yes. He actually won the 2000 election, again, highly managed and rigged, although he and his supporters would say otherwise. And he, very soon after that, goes on a state visit to Japan, and during this time, he is found by the Supreme Court in Peru uh, guilty of charges including money laundering, embezzlement and being responsible to these massacres of innocent indigenous communities. Now, what he does is he simply doesn't come back from Japan. He essentially seeks asylum in Japan, Japan grants it, and he's essentially in exile there um, until 2006. He tenders his resignation and the centre-right coalition takes power. In the meantime, in 2006, he makes the return or he attempts to make the return to Peru to run in the elections, the upcoming elections again. But what happens is he is actually arrested in Chile 
He's arrested on the charges. The Peruvian Supreme Court and government have put out an arrest warrant, an international arrest warrant, and the Chilean authorities cooperate and they extradite Fujimori uh, back to Peru. Ever since then, he has been in a constant tug of war with the legal system over whether or not, firstly, he can stay under house arrest or whether he's actually going to jail, whether or not his jail sentence is for life or just for 20, 25 years. So it's been a really a long, bureaucratic, dragged out process that still doesn't have any sort of conclusion. I mean, finally, he's been convicted, um, but they're still deciding on whether or not he's going to spend the rest of his sentence under house arrest or actually in a jail cell. And he's actually alternated between the two for the past two decades. And that's how corrupt, I suppose, and inefficient Peruvian institutions have become, chiefly because of his interventions in the 1990s. After he is arrested and, he, and the legal proceedings begin against him, uh, up until 2011, uh, a range of centre-right political parties, traditional political parties, exchange power. Uh, without too much incidence, uh, for, for the first time in a long time in Peru's political history. But what we have in 2011 is a, a break with that traditional centre-right political system. Because what we have is Ollanta Humala, who is part Indigenous himself, he becomes the elected leader in 2011 as a part of the Peruvian Nationalist Party. Now, the Peruvian Nationalist Party is a left-wing party. Humala believes in the socialism of the 21st century that Hugo Chavez first espoused. Uh, he seeks deeper ties with Venezuela and Cuba. Uh, he openly expresses his admiration for them. And he does attempt to regain some sort of state control, particularly over mining, at the very least taxes on mining companies. Because up until this point, and particularly during the 80s and the 90s, the mining corporations had been allowed to essentially loot Peru's mineral wealth without paying almost nothing. It was, it was egregious. But Ollanta Humala... He tries to sort of re-establish the state's role in the Peruvian economy. He attracts a large Indigenous vote and he narrowly defeats Keiko Fujimori, who is the daughter of uh, the ex-dictator Alberto Fujimori. So this is her first time entering the political arena officially as a member of a party. Her party is Fuerza Popular, Popular Force. It's a far-right fascist party. She advocates openly neoliberalism. She advocates a return to that highly militarised form of Peruvian politics that her father pioneered. Openly advocates arresting and killing left-wing forces and indigenous groups. You know, she's just as disgusting as her father was. But of course, again, she has a lot of connections. She's an incredibly wealthy businesswoman. And there's a persistent chunk of the Peruvian population that will support her. There is a persistent chunk of the middle upper classes in Peru throughout the 90s that idolised Fujimori for his war on terror. They, they loved him because he was putting an end to the leftist threat. He was defending their business interests. And to this day, they idolise Alberto Fujimori. And all of that support for her father has translated across today to Keiko Fujimori, who is seen as the successor to her father in a lot of ways. And you'll be listening to part one of the interview with Sasha Gillisakakis looking at the recent history of Peru, the present and the possible future. 3CR Community Radio is dedicated to exploring the issues that affect our future. Because I think it is something we just need to be talking about. 855am. Tune in and listen up.
you're a renter experiencing hardship due to the pandemic, you can check now to see if you're eligible to apply for the Victorian Government's new one-off rental relief grant worth up to $1,500. To help you, Tenants Victoria have put together an eligibility checklist. This will make it easier for you to assess whether you're eligible to apply for the grant, which is paid as a contribution towards rent. There are some steps involved to qualify for the grant. See the checklist for more information and visit the Tenants Victoria website for further details on how to apply. Go to tenantsvic.org.au and search for Rent Relief Grants. Tenants Victoria is a 3CR supporter. It's time to stand by us. Following the success of our free inaugural event last year, Buy Plus Collective Australia proudly presents the second Stand By Us forum to celebrate Buy Plus Visibility Day. All events are free and all bar one happen online. Starting with the opening First Nations keynote on the morning of Thursday 23rd September, Celebrate Bisexuality Day, there will be fun events like a Buy Plus Games Meetup, artsy buy events including the Biconic performances and panel discussions on themes such as queering relationships for those who are bi and polyamorous. To check out the program, including the Safe Space Guidelines, visit our webpage standbyus.com. That's S-T-A-N-D-B-I-U-S dot com. It's time to stand by us. A 3CR supporter. The third and final report of the Independent International Commission of Investigation into Human Rights Violations in the Philippines had its official launch on September the 13th. I'm speaking with the chairperson, Peter Murphy. So, Peter, perhaps we could just briefly outline the contents of the first two. The first report, which was released in March this year, focused on demonstrating that violations of uh, human rights now, October the previous year, when the UN Human Rights Council decided to provide technical and capacity building assistance on human rights to the Philippines government, you know, we were, I think, quite affronted that uh, the Human Rights Council had sort of accepted, uh, you know, on face value Duterte's claims that he was doing his best to defend the human rights of the Filipino people. And there was a report published by the uh, High Commissioner Michelle Bachelet in June of last year, which painted a very, very tough picture of the situation. The council just wouldn't go with that. So uh, our first report was aimed at really uh, recounting at least 50 separate incidents which demonstrated that, it, that the situation was getting worse. I think we achieved that. And the second aim was to say, uh, to demonstrate that if somebody's rights were violated in the Philippines, they really had nowhere to go to get any compensation, justice, and I think we, we also were able to do that. And, you know, it's, that's the real picture. That was a three on people being shot, people uh, arrested on completely fake charges, 
the um, harassment, uh, persecution of individuals in the media or in churches, but uh, especially um, those urban poor people who are living in a state of terror in this war on drugs program of Duterte's. And as it turns out, when you're lastly, it's really like a... Um, it's a war on the, the most vulnerable people in society to demonstrate that the government can do whatever it likes. And it's really an operation of brutal power being uh, demonstrated and uh, impunity being demonstrated. Yeah, it was a very compelling report. But, you know, in terms of the debate or the, the view of member states at the Human Rights Council, it was focused on civil and political rights which are, you know, what we in the Western countries think of as human rights. This second report, which we published in July, tried to look at these horrible numbers in a more systematic way, and we analysed them down into a war on the poor, that is the drug war, a war on dissent, that is the killings and harassment of political activists, and the war on the Moro people, which is really the, what's happening under the so-called war on terror in the Philippines. Each of these sort of aspects or ways of seeing uh, the situation, uh, we were trying to emphasise that it's a war. The world should look at it and recognise that the government is at war with uh, big parts of the population of the Philippines. And the, the laws of war are being completely ignored. There are laws of war in relation to conflicts within uh, that are not international in nature, that is, they're within one country. Civilians who have no arms, uh, weapons, uh, absolutely to be protected under the law. But in the Philippines, there's no such distinction. In fact, you know, the, uh, the repression might be allegedly about the rebel forces of the New People's Army or a different Moro rebel groups, but the targets uh, are civilians. Yeah. You know, the military in the Philippines doesn't really like to get into combat with people with guns. Second report really brought this forward very strongly. And the, the third report uh, was shifted the lens away from these individual rights, uh, which are, of course, are so important, to collective rights that are uh, really uh, expressed in the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights and other declarations and treaties like the uh, rights of Indigenous people, the rights of the child, Convention Against Discrimination in All Forms Against Women and so on. This was also you know, really heart-wrenching to, to work on because the social reality in the Philippines is so harsh. And under Duterte's government say, since 2016, it became a lot harsher it, in this level. That is the, the actual livelihoods of people, the, the level of wages, the level of employment, the money actually spent on education and health, the housing crisis, uh, all of these uh, aspects of the basis of a decent life uh, which are actually human rights, uh, all were diminished in these last five years and a, five years and a half now of um, Duterte's presidency. Of course, these problems of poverty and so on are very long-standing in the Philippines, and really the connection here is ordinary people faced with this situation 
have to do something. They have to speak out and call for improvements, demand certain things, especially in terms of the rural population, which is most of the people in the Philippines, calling for land to be distributed to, to farmers because uh, most of the people are landless and they have very precarious employment and very low incomes, but they're capable of producing food if they had some land. So that land reform demand is a very long-standing one in the Philippines. But when people in the countryside call for that, organise for that, they are hit by either private armies or the real army, which is really going to assert the control of the landlord class. We're getting into that point where the uh, civil and political rights are what is attacked when people call for their collective rights to be fulfilled. Peter, does that make the Philippines a little different to other countries in the region, that it's a largely a rural population? I don't think so. I mean, other parts of the region are like that. Like a contrast would be to look at, say, uh, Taiwan or South Korea, where in the 1950s and 60s there were land reforms programs really carried out very thoroughly um, because there were such violent conflicts in those places and even the authoritarian governments in those places realised they needed to do something. So there was a big social transformation and a rapid industrialisation in both those countries. The big part of the population is now urban. But uh, in the Philippines, Malaysia, Indonesia, Vietnam, it's like a majority uh, agricultural society and all of those countries have got different rates of development in terms of industrial and so on. But the Philippines is pretty much now, you know, compared to even where it was in the 1960s, it's fallen back in that regard. It's it's really sort of stuck in a... The, the, the classic political words are semi-colonial, semi-feudal society, and it's stuck like that. Uh, whereas I think some other countries in the region have, have made a bit more of an advance. And also the influence of the US in the Philippines. It's not only the military, as we all know, but the, the ownership of the land, or the, not so much the ownership of the land, but the companies that work there, the mining companies, the agricultural companies. Yeah, we've got a combination. It's also long-standing now because the United States invaded the 19th century. They sort of handed over a formal independence in 1946, but they kept complete you know, economic and military domination all the way through to now. In the agricultural sector, you know, we have on the shelves in our supermarkets now pineapple from Dole, D-O-L-E, an American company that's got huge plantations in Mindanao and they export the product. And you know, the wages are very low, you know, like $5 a day for those workers. Um, the same applies with say, bananas and coconut and uh, so on. But uh, in in industrial side of things, Philippines was the first place to have export processing zones, special zones with tax breaks for the investors. And so the big investors are American and Japanese and European in uh, those zones. A few shifted to China or they've shifted to Vietnam in this last 20 years, but those, those zones are still operating. And uh, in the mining sector, again, it's, it's dominated by American, Canadian, Japanese 
companies. Yeah, it's, it's foreign, foreign controlled. Um, but the American side of it is, you know, the dominant. With the military, the US had really big bases there for a long time, up to 1991. They were kicked out in 91, but they got back in 1999. They're sort of entrenching their presence there because, you know, Philippines is a, located near to China. It's, a, it's an important uh, base in terms of American military strategy towards China. And really, as, as with Marcos and other terrible regimes before Duterte, you know, the US policy is to turn a blind eye to any of these abuses because, you know, Duterte is our, our guy. Philippines is our base and uh, we will support whoever uh, lets us operate there. And also we have to emphasise once again the role of Australia. Australia's position is had a long-standing connection with the Philippines since World War II in the military sense. In, the, in terms of the war on terror, the United States has asked Australia to play a bigger role. So, you know, before 2001, Australia's only military agreement was with the United States. After 2001, it's created one with the uh, Philippines and one with Indonesia. To a certain extent, you know, lesser, lesser agreements, but still military agreements with Japan. So Australia's got a role to play to back up American interests in the Philippines. And we've seen significant uh, deployments of Australian soldiers. Australia does a lot of training of uh, Philippine military officers in Australia. And Philippine troops come to Australia now for training exercises as well. We obviously are in Australia in the middle of a big debate about military confrontation with China. But the likely you know, development is that more Australian soldiers will be sent to the Philippines to suppress rebel, so-called rebel forces in the, in the Philippines. Just to get back to the investigation, Peter, this third report, based on testimonies and others, very brave people who come forward for an investigation yes. like this bit of a uh, balancing act you know that people will come forward and give their testimony of what's happened to them or what's happened to people in their organizations and they will come under pressure for doing so but they've all all these people have already been under pressure for a long time so you know they uh, especially those relatives of people who have been killed they really want justice they, they, they want the killing to stop and of course, they're willing to risk, take risks to pursue that because, you know, they've had their close people killed. You know, it's, it's really heart-wrenching, you know, from our point of view, attending these hearings and, and hearing, especially their women usually, and my husband was killed in this way and that way, they're still in grief and uh, it's, it's harrowing. Well, other, other people, though, are leaders of, you know, farmers, organisations or uh, trade unions, legal you know, bodies, um, women's organisations, they are already being pilloried pretty routinely uh, as terrorists, uh, communists. They've been getting death threats for years. They um, are sort of solidly <clears throat> committed to pursuing this campaign to change the situation in the Philippines to one which is more democratic uh, where more people get to pursue you know, their 
development of their lives in a safe way and they're you know obviously prepared to suffer if if necessary to achieve that and they've seen again so many of their friends co-workers suffer so they they're not going to so run away from it themselves we in australia we have a lot of great political activists but we don't have to face these sort of pressures uh, it's, it's always pretty um impressive and uh, you, you, you're a little bit in awe of the people that uh, I have to listen to and uh, talk with about these, these issues. There's a great number of recommendations of this report. Yeah, I think the, you know, the most pertinent one for Australia is, is that we should reduce or stop the military aid until there's a change to you know, genuine accountability for these abuses. That's something that you know, is an Australian task. Australia is also quite involved in the uh, UN. It's no longer on the Human Rights Council, but every member state can speak there if they wish to. Australia has played somewhat a positive role on the Human Rights Council, calling for change in the Philippines, but so gentle that, in fact, it's so far been ineffectual. Whatever the Minister for Foreign Affairs might say in these international forums, the, the Department of Defence is doing the opposite. So, you know, we, we've got a problem in Australia in getting enough debate in the parliament and in, in the community as a whole to really, you know, stop this nonsense and, and to uphold the so-called democratic values Australia stands by in relation to the Philippines. That's, uh, I think, the most important thing to say. But uh, the, there are many recommendations there, and one was to, to the International Criminal Court to expedite its investigation of uh, crimes against humanity in the Philippines. And uh, only a few days after we published, they, the ICC did announce that they were formally commencing that investigation. That's really good. That's a you know established international legal institution which Australia is a party to. I think Australia should strongly support the ICC going forward um, with this investigation, despite the very outspoken resistance from Duterte himself and, and his government to it going forward. You know, it's, it's sending a message not only in the Philippines, but in different parts of the world that, you know, outrageous abuses of human rights will be uh, called to account by uh, institutions like the ICC. In total, how many organisations have received this report? I myself had the responsibility to send it to the Human Rights Council. So that was done on Tuesday and the uh, International Criminal Court also received it on Tuesday, the UN Secretary General on Tuesday and on Wednesday I sent it to our Foreign Minister, the Opposition Foreign Affairs Spokesperson, Senator Wong, and the Greens foreign affairs spokesperson is uh, Senator Janet Rice. She was actually on the commission, so she's much more engaged with the content of the report. We've done that sort of formal thing. And then in, in Australia, we, we have a network of uh, individuals, trade unions and churches who are involved with the Philippine Solidarity Works. So they've also all received the report this week. The media also have been informed, but uh, our Australian media is pretty well uh, not interested uh, so far. I can say, Peter, it's a huge undertaking by 
very dedicated people. Thanks, thanks for saying that, Jan. And uh, the reason this has happened is because Filipino people for decades have been reaching out to the international community for assistance and solidarity, and these relationships have been developed, as I say, over a long period of time. So there's a, also in the international community an important network of people who are very much committed to seeing this struggle through. We definitely won't be stopping. No, no matter what the obstacles, we won't stop until there's a significant democratic change in the Philippines. And at this very moment, the COVID pandemic is causing havoc still in the Philippines? Yes, actually, it's a very severe impact of the Delta variant right now. I think that the people are suffering enormously because there's still lockdowns, like, like we've had here, but they've been pretty well in lockdown since March last year. 100,000 people plus have been arrested and put in jail for breaching the, the lockdowns because they, you know, many parts, people don't, don't have running water in their homes. They have to walk outside to get water. They have to walk outside to get food. Hunger has been a massive problem. A huge loss of livelihood has happened during the pandemic. And the government has really, for a couple of months, they gave some cash support to a significant number of people, not everyone. But after three months, they, they stopped it. So we've had more than a year of really nothing for, for millions and millions of people. So, yeah, there's a huge suffering in the Philippines with the pandemic right now. And, of course, if you put people in prison, that's probably just about a, a death sentence because of overcrowding. That's right. I mean, these people are in, in been put in prison because they couldn't pay bail. The, the, the prisons, like, five times as many people are in them as they're designed for. Yes, it's, it's, it is a death sentence, yes. Is there a positive note we can finish on, Peter? The, the positive outlook is that there's now an election sort of dynamic taking over in the Philippines. The Duterte, under his constitution, uh, is only entitled to one six-year term. So there is the prospect of a, a change uh, in May next year and from July next year, a different sort of government. And uh, it is possible that there would be a, you know, a united, more democratic alternative to Duterte come forward. That is, there'll be only one candidate against his candidate. And his candidate is going to be his daughter. And, and he's saying he's going to be the vice presidential candidate. That's probably unconstitutional. So there'll be a, a legal squabble about that soon. But if there's one opposition candidate, it's, it's, it's most likely, I think, that the Duterte side would be defeated and that there would be some kind of restitution of uh, the uh, democratic practices following that election. We have to do our best from outside to assist that uh, movement to be fair, the election to be as clean as possible. It's always full of cheating, and in fact, in the Philippines. If possible, given the pandemic, they you know, have have observers from outside uh, be there for the campaign and the counting. But there is this, obviously, a prospect of change, and there's a, you know, a huge movement in the Philippines for uh, democratic change. So that's the optimism there. Thanks, Peter. Take care. And Peter Murphy is the chair of the Independent International Commission of Investigation into Human Rights Violations in the Philippines. And that's all for me today. 
do stay tuned for Done By Law. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.